Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. And uh, we welcome uh, questions from the floor. And please uh, let us know who you're directing the question to. So, anytime you want to start, let's get at it. Because you people are known, you have a reputation for the ability to voice very, very intelligent questions. Uh, good afternoon, and uh, thank you, gentlemen, for your presentation this afternoon. Uh, my name is Dr. Vernon West. I live in Lethbridge. I'm a retired veterinarian, rancher, etc. Uh, the question I have regarding climate change. During the geological history of the world, there has been many, many drastic and sudden climate changes. There's many reasons why it might that have been discussed, whether it's uh, volcanoes, meteors, uh, tilt of the earth, etc., etc. Uh, 25,000 years ago, I understand we were covered here by approximately 100 feet of ice. There's not much out there today. Uh, could you comment upon, uh, although there are, we are affecting our climate by our actions, but uh, we, do we know enough about the the climate changes to say that we are doing it or will it occur anyway, the climate change. Thank you. Thanks. It's a, a, a good question, a very pertinent question. Actually, my understanding is that 25,000 years ago, we've actually been, this spot right here, we've actually been under a couple of kilometers of ice. So there was a, basically a continental ice cap over most of Canada at that time. And it suddenly disappeared uh, about 12 or 13,000 years ago. Uh, and they're still trying to understand exactly why that happened, and that there's some interesting theories which I won't go into, but, but, um, but one of the messages of, of the history of climate on Earth is that uh, these climate changes can actually occur sometimes very, very rapidly. So you can have long periods, you can have thousands of years of relatively stable conditions, and then boom, something changes. And they're not always sure why, although we begin to get an idea why these things occur. Um, yes, the climate scientists they certainly have, are aware of the history of Earth's climate, that sometimes it's been a lot colder than it is today, sometimes it's been excuse me, quite a bit warmer than it is today. We're kind of in, in between. We're in what's called an interglacial period right now, and it's a relatively nice interglacial. It's not that the last one was a little bit warmer. 125,000 years ago, there was an interglacial uh, called the Enian, doesn't matter what it was called where the, the, the global temperatures were an average of, a, I don't know, a degree or so higher than they are now, and sea level was about 20 feet higher than it is now. And, and uh, certainly one thing they found is that over the long geological history, sea level cor correlates rather well with temperature. So anyway, the long story short, as I say, I'm not a climatologist. I've read a great deal of literature on this. My understanding is that the climate scientists are, have done everything in their power to try to understand whether the current changes we're seeing are, make sure, are they due to volcanoes, solar changes, solar emissions, and so forth. And certainly the changes we're seeing in the last, say, 75 to 100 years, as far as I know, uh, all of the other major possibilities have been ruled out. And it's not as if nobody hasn't thought of these possibilities. Um, volcanoes, no. Uh, change in solar output, not big enough. Um, 
cosmic rays, things like that. There's, uh, they can have a small influence here and there, but not enough as far as we know. Whereas there is a lot of positive evidence that climate change today is due primarily to the emission of CO2 from fossil fuels and to a secondary extent by deforestation, which also uh, affects climate, obviously by eliminating the amount of photosynthesis, producing the amount of photosynthesis. Anyway, sure, it's a long question. It's a long I can't even give a, a full answer to that question, which is it was a good question. Mary Shillington, thank you to both of you for your thoughtful presentations. We had some quite interesting discussion on our table. Um, I, I'm a bit of a cynic, um, and so for Cosmos, uh, I appreciate that uh, this energy colloquium that you're talking about uh, is a good idea and hopefully will present some good ideas and uh, do some interesting research and so on. But we have a present federal government that is cutting scientists is uh, not valuing very very highly any scientific information that doesn't fit in with their political ideology. Uh, so I'm not sure how much they'll be open to listening. And so what what are you suggesting we need to do? In a democracy, there is a very simple topic. Vote them out. Hi, my name is Mark Sandylands. I had the same question that Mary had, so I'll have to ask a different question now. Um, I, actually, I would like to, to uh, pursue that. Uh, do you, uh, give, given their, their past, the current federal government's uh, past behavior toward uh, scientists over the past uh, seven years of, of them uh, ruling Canada, uh, and if you're, uh, if you don't doubt it, uh, Google uh, or put in your search engine uh, the name of the leader of the current government and uh, science, just those two words, and, and you'll find a, a lot of uh, information. What are the prospects uh, for the near term? Uh, it, it seems to me that we do need a concerted, as Kent called for, a concerted effort to find alternative forms of energy. Just as an example, I read a couple of weeks ago that there are enough fossil fuel reservoirs, proven reservoirs for oil and natural gas and coal, to put 2.7 gigatons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And we have room under current models for global warming for about 500 gigatons. So they're putting something like five times, so they, they have plans to put five times the amount of uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than uh, the atmosphere can hold, uh, given the current models. So given our need for, for scientific uh, endeavors, really strong, concerted scientific endeavors to find different ways of fueling or, or feeding our need for energy and perhaps reducing our need for energy, what are your, your prospects for the uh, next 10 years? Both of you. Well, thanks. I mean, these, these are open-ended questions that could lead us to ramble on here until everybody's gone home and, and the custodial staff comes along and takes us away. But, but, but uh, um, last, there's a one fascinating quote that Andrew Nick Porak showed us here last week, which was a quote from... Um, a cabinet minister in, in Edmonton, I can't remember the gentleman's name, 
who basically said it would be undemocratic to question the judgment of the present government. That's, what, that's literally what this man said. Now, to me, this indicates a certain lack of understanding of what democracy is all about. And, and then people are asking, how can we influence the government? And the answer is just do what you it's in your democratic right to do, which is speak out, ask questions, write letters to the editor, organize meetings, whatever you can do. There's many, many means of communication open to all of us, and uh, use them. So make a lot of noise and, and ask, ask, ask the awkward questions. And sooner or later, no guarantees, but that's the only thing that's going to work if anything will. One of the things uh, that uh, comes in mind when we talk about it is uh, that we got to start follow up with talk, to follow it up with actions. And to do that, we got to oblige our politicians to stop making decisions for which are political, because energy decisions are not political, environmental decisions are not political, are scientific. And, to and each one of us has to dig down and say, why am I doing that? Why I pursue an ideology, since the ideology gets nowhere? Like, for example, something that people are familiar with, a lot of people, environmentalists, uh, uh, push blindly wind power. And the more windmills we build, the less incentive, the more windmills the suppliers sell, and the less incentive they have to do R&D to evaluate to eliminate the problem with the wind power. But it doesn't happen because there are people that blindly and ideologically pursue their own energy. And that's why I come back to my original point of the presentation. We've got to establish a healthy thinking, all of us, for the common good. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. Um, I, my question is the same as Mary Shillington's, but I'm not going to ask another question. I was quite interested, Cosmaster, here you refer to the Lethbridge Colloquium. Perhaps you could elaborate on that and tell us what it's all about and what you hope may come out of it. Well, as I mentioned, energy issues and environmental issues are not single-layer issues. They're multi-layer issues. And you need expertise in all the layers in order to be able to sit around the table and not fight, not because we don't have ideologically convinced people. We have people that expertise even the philosophy of energy. Okay? And you have, we have experts in wind power, experts in solar power, experts in nuclear power, experts in geothermal and so forth. You know, and, we, and it is open and and we invite anybody who has something to contribute and has a field to join us. But at the same time, that way then, you can integrate all the layers of the question and come up with a solution that it is viable in terms of science. And that's what we have done, and that's why we have formed that uh, um, paper now that when spins, we're going to forward to the federal government. My name is Van Christu. I would like to preface my remarks by stating uh, how fortunate we are uh, to be here today to be able to discuss uh, a very important issue uh, with knowledgeable people. Uh, thank you very much, both of you, for your presentations. 
Um, as we sit here, um, we are faced with a real negative attitude about the, the need for new information, new technology. Um, China this year is building a hundred new universities, uh, focusing mainly on, on science and engineering. Um, uh, we're not going in that same direction. And today, uh, the Western world, particularly America, leads in its technological, uh, in the, te the area of technology throughout the world. That leadership is not going to last long unless we get our act together and promote more education at the higher levels uh, on these issues. And so I'd like to uh, follow up on, on Trevor's question that your collegium uh, dealing with energy, I think is a remarkable achievement and, uh, and I hope that, uh, that we'll be able to support it uh, uh, locally here in Lethbridge in order to get some message to our government that the people are concerned and that we want uh, this issue faced squarely and with action, not just with words. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, again, there's a lot to be said in response there. Certainly, um, it's interesting you mentioned China, and I hadn't heard that they're building 100 universities devoted to science and technology. Uh, it doesn't surprise me. Um, in, in the list, little list of countries I mentioned that we have to watch out for, I forgot to mention China, and I should have, because although the Chinese are predicating their present economy very heavily on, on coal and oil, they're doing that simply because they feel they have no choice. And they are trying, they are amongst the few jurisdictions in the world where they are trying very, very hard to find other ways. And, um, you know, the next big innovation might very well come out of China and rather than Alberta. And even though we have talent and resources here, are we really using them? So, good point. Well, just to follow up on that particular topic, right now, China and India are develop a type of nuclear reactor that's based on volume fuel. It will not produce radioactive waste. It will not be able to have a meltdown accident. And will burn all the previous fuel we have accumulated. Thank you. My name is Frank Hahn. I'm normally the last one bringing up the rear. You know what that means. But anyway, that's very educational you two gentlemen. Uh, I just, one question is, how far advanced are we in, pro in providing manufacturing the batteries for automobiles? How far advanced? I know we're having problems with the franchise, what have you. And secondly, the other little question is, uh, I know not, you're not geologists, but we're talking about energy, we're destroying the initial energy that, that humanity has used since its beginning. Coal, we're destroying valuable coal. I know it's the, it's the blackbird of, of, of the energy uh, as far as the carbon emissions. But surely the goodness, with our knowledge even today, we, we should be able to purify the exhaust of it but we are destroying very valuable coal seams by fracking. I'm an ex-miner. I know exactly what it does to rock and shale. 
that holds it up. Now, have you, either one of you got a response to what? Why, why are we allowing $3 gigajoule gas to destroy a $50 per ton coal? Very interesting. I never thought of it that way, but it looks to me that it's another one of the low alloy numbers. Really, that becomes a negative alloy. Really? Um, good question. I don't know enough about this. Uh, certainly, um, it might be viewed as short-term versus long-term issue. Short-term, we need the natural gas today. Okay, uh, the coal, well, figure. All right, if we're degrading the coal with that. That's not going to be a problem for 20, 30 years. So maybe, maybe what's going on is just sort of a long, a long-term versus short-term picture here. But, but I don't know for sure. I just honestly don't know much about this, and it does. It's, it's a very good question. Um, now the other point is to whether you can clean up the emissions from coal. Yes, in principle you can. But again, this gets us into an eroid issue here. To take to scrub CO2 out of exhaust costs energy. A significant percentage of the energy you produce by burning the coal. And yes, you can do it, but at a certain point, you spend so much energy cleaning up the coal, the exhaust, that you haven't got a whole lot left over to generate electricity or whatever it is you wanted to do. So again, it's it's a it's a it's a very difficult balancing act, and, and anything we do takes energy. So uh, if we if we clean up the environment, that takes energy too. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I'm just saying. All, all of these energy costs have to be recommended when, when you figure out what we're going to do. Well, there's a lot more that you said there. My name is Pat McSweet. Thank you very much, both of you. And my question is for both of you. Can anybody change his or her mind? Uh, Cosmos can answer this. Uh, I was uh, in Fukushima in May last year. And the fear of nuclear radiation was real. Even 70 years after government's effort to persuade people to accept nuclear energy, it was real. They haven't changed their mind. That's only one example. If any, everybody can accept scientific facts, as you say, it's paradise. Wonderful. But we don't, because we don't change our mind. How can we change our mind to bother you? Wow, that's a, good, well, that's a very a, good question. It's a tremendous question because what you have is a physical weakness of humanity. How do you control emotions with logic? It's very difficult. But the thing is, eventually, people do learn, not all of them, but some more open-minded do learn. Like, in Fukushima, we had a situation where the world was destroyed and everybody would die and so forth. And there were only about, what, 30 or 40 people died and from the radiation. And we had more than a thousand people die from stress when they were evacuated. So, how do you educate people, the audience? You can't. You can only talk and repeat and repeat until eventually the emotions can be controlled and logic can fall in. I don't know any other way. Well, <clears throat> what I'd like to add is, is that, I mean, I'm an educator by trade, I'm a prof at the university, I write, I teach, I give lectures, all that kind of stuff, and I do research, and, and so, uh, in a sense, 
Um, my job description is to help change people's minds in a positive way about about uh, things. And, and uh, you know, as professors, we all have our jokes. You know, I'm sure there's some professors or former professors in this room here. We all have our jokes about students sometimes, and you know, it can be quite funny. But 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 uh, but um, I had a student a few years ago who said. Socrates asked himself, "What would Jesus do?" But uh, anyway, sorry, I just, but, 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 but quite seriously, uh, the the uh, the, uh, the the fact is, people do learn, and, to, and not not everybody learns, and not everybody wants to learn. But to me, it's one of the most encouraging things about the human animal is that, on certain occasions at least, people are capable of learning. It doesn't always work, and some sometimes it's failed disastrously. But I. I'm, I'm essentially an optimist. I mean, my whole profession as, a, as an educator and researcher is based on the view that there's some point in trying to learn and to teach. It does sometimes work. And so, that, that again, have a little faith in the human animal. If they provide the human animal with enough information, uh, sometimes they will think, sometimes they will learn, and, and often do some amazing things. I'm essentially an optimist about that, despite the critical comments I'm prepared to make sometimes. Hi, I'm Bev from the Laffey Stone. Yeah, I loved Andrew McFlurick's talk last week, too. Um, he mentioned that having slaves to provide the energy put back the development of the two-stroke engine um, centuries. And I would put forth that having the oil and gas industry um, helping us to, to uh, maximize our energy, is putting back R&D centuries. Uh, two years ago I was in India, and one of the R&D there was um, smokeless chulas. In other words, people have been mainly using charcoal burners to create energy, to create little fires, and they realized that it was creating so much pollution that they came up with a big competition throughout India and came up with smokeless little fires that would use uh, the same fuels as people have been using previously, but no CO2 emissions. So my question is, why do we allow the oil and gas industry to buy up all the patents for good batteries that would extend the life of our solar and wind power? Why do we allow the oil and gas industry to buy up the, the patents for cars that will run um, 70 kilometers or 70 miles on one liter of gas. Why do we allow this when we need we need all kinds of opportunities to look at a environmentally neutral way of providing energy? I don't believe that there could be an environmental clean form of energy any kind. Even the most efficient, the hydropower, still would take a very big dam that has a lot of concrete, pound for pound in CO2 and concrete that you would spend, and flooding an area. So there is no such a thing as clean energy. Let's not dream. There is not. I'm trying to find it, and if I find my patent, but so far, in my 50 years, I have not found it. I still search and I'm learning every day. It doesn't exist. We can only hope to find ways that will recycle the CO2 we emit, 
So because there is a method to drop the CO2 and put it back into hydrocarbons in the US Navy is using it, and that could prove efficient for some fuels. But even to build those facilities, we need to spend energy and that emits CO2. You mentioned the interesting question of patents. Now, I'm not an expert in patent law. And I, again, I wish I knew more about this, but from my general knowledge, the, the present patent system is, is, many people say it's broken. Uh, and now the, the original idea of patents, when they brought it in a couple of centuries ago, was, <clears throat> was to serve two purposes, that the inventor should have reasonable return on his or her invention, but also at the same time the public should have the benefit of the knowledge. So if you invent a better mousetrap, you have a period of time when you're allowed to profit from that as long as you really invented it and in the public, but you also publish your methods. Now, the trouble is today, the patent is be, to get a patent on, on a new device has become colossally expensive. <clears throat> I have a retent friend who's a retired engineer who sort of walked me through the paces once in the company he, he worked for, what's involved in getting patents. My God, I mean, if you invented a, you know, a new amazing device for, I don't know, carbon sequestration or something, that could save the world, um, you almost would have to just give it away. Uh, it, it, to, to, unless you have the backing of a like, major corporate backing, it is so expensive and so difficult to get a patent for a device right now that I think it's actually kind of reductive. It, inhibit, it, it may very well be one of the things that inhibits new innovations in various fields. I wish I knew more about that, but just to suffice to say, there's a major question about patents and whether our present patent system does uh, serve the greater good of society, or even the, the, certain, the, invent, the, certain, the interest in the inventors. My name is uh, Clint Peterson. I'd like to uh, get your opinion on subsidies. Subsidies come in many ways, low royalty rates, low tax rates, uh, direct subsidies, whatever. The, the banking industry in Alberta got probably about $2 billion in the last three years from the Alberta government to back. Um, can you see, so renewable energy doesn't receive anywhere near the subsidies that oil companies and, you know. Uh, do you see any hope that the future subsidies will go towards, well, research and development would also be the taxpayer dollars we're talking about? So. Can you give me a little thought on subsidies, whether we should be targeting subsidies uh, to better use and... Well, subsidies could be of two kinds. One is to subsidize something for short-term gain, like we needed the fracking or something because we're running out of gas and the U.S. needs some oil for the next 20 years or 10 years or something to get the independence. But then afterwards, even the fracking, the oil well will last two and a half years and then stops producing oil. People don't know that. So you have to force to keep fracking all the time. But anyways, um, that's, it's a short-term subsidy. Depends how badly you need it, you could use it. What I am more in favor to do R&D subsidies but then to have a governance to make sure that professors don't abuse it, because I have witnessed some situations where it becomes a modus operandi and money flowing in, and then it has to be accountable. 
and, and, and has to be a, a governance there to establish, to energy governance to establish and drive, like in my husband project, drive it and make sure that everything works on time. That kind of subsidy I can see. But as I mentioned before, you see, the subsidies now we do for wind power works against R&D and the wind industry, so that we don't get out of the hop to get a better windmill, which is not good. It doesn't help very much. So, I, I, unless it is for R&D, it has to be a very special case for some subsidies to build a prototype, which I bring it to the base of R&D. But past the prototype, every energy should be able to stand on its own field and not need any more subsidies. Last question, please. Thank you, Mr. Chair. My name is Joseph Mantuck, and it's a very quick question. I, I have a question that you can answer for me. In that group that you're uh, that's working, your scientific group, does that include any social inputs at all? Because I, I, I got a, a bit of feeling that maybe some of the there should be four components rather than the uh, environment, the engineers, and the environmentalists. But what about the social part? There is one gentleman, but then there's always room for more. <laughs> well, because the answer was so short and the question so good, I, 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 do, I do have one burning question myself. Um, we were talking about, I think we talked about change. This, you know, when something is coming, we have to do things differently. This change, how is this going to impact our quality of life? Because I hear so much about all the fear of change or quality of life. How, how is this energy, future energy and quality of life related? Okay, well, I, I guess there's a couple of questions there. The relation between energy and quality of life. As I said, uh, to run a complex society, you need a lot of energy. Um, and, you know, all the things we do, we're sitting here in this comfortable room eating a good meal and wearing good clothing, and maybe you're going to go home and you know, watch a hockey game on TV or something like that. And all that is energy being processed through in various forms. If we have less energy, we can do some of the things we'd like to do. Um, as I said, societies have collapsed because they, all of a sudden, they didn't have the energy to keep, maintain all those activities that they like to do. Um, but now, the cost of change, yeah, the change... Change has costs. Change is risky. Um, I mean, as I mean, as I mean, I work at a university here. Obviously, a portion of my salary is, is supported by oil and gas revenues. I work at an Alberta university. Uh, but if that suddenly ceased, maybe I lose my job. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm aware of that as, as a potential risk. So change, change is risky for everybody. But what if you don't have a choice but to make a change? What if you can see something coming? And uh, you know that you've got to do something. Do you want to have force upon you by some catastrophe? Or do you want to sort of prepare for it, take rational steps for it, uh, hold your nose and go through with it? And, um, um, you know, sometimes you have to do that. I mean, I'm speaking as a person, I'm, I'm a survivor of open heart surgery. About 14 years ago, I had a leaky mitral valve repaired. And I'm still here today, and it worked pretty well. I had a great surgeon. But uh, uh, what happened was very philosophically illuminating. Is it the particular? I mean, I don't want to. You know, people love to talk about their operations, so I don't, don't want to see my scar. But, but I don't want to get into all of that. But 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 the basic, the, the gist of it was um, that I, the particular problem I had is something that creeps up on people slowly. It doesn't suddenly knock you over. It's just that 
the doctors can see, hey, you have this problem, and if you don't get it fixed in five years, I'm going to be uh, at your funeral, right? But you might feel okay today, and you think, why, why do I need to go through this surgery? And fortunately, the doctors presented me with enough evidence. I, understood, I did some homework on it, and I, I understood the issue, so I understood I had to go through with it, even though I wasn't, you know, lying and emerged. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, now, if I hadn't had that surgery, I know perfectly well I'd either be under the grass or crippled today. I was, was very, I had to do it. But that was a case for me personally where I had to, I saw something coming, I had professional advice. Um, I took the professional advice. I didn't, I could have put it off another year or two, but you know, every bit time that year that I put it off made it riskier and riskier to go ahead, so I did. And uh, possibly as with some of these issues around energy and climate, that was a similar situation here. We, we could ignore this for a year or two more, maybe three, I'm not sure how long, maybe 10 years. Maybe 10 years from now, it won't be substantially worse than it is today. I'm not sure. The experts aren't exactly sure. But still, you can see it coming. And so do you want to deal with it now when it's still a manageable problem, or do you don't want to wait until, you know, um, you know, New York City goes under or something like that, and then maybe it's a little too late. So I think that's a partial answer to your question. If I may add that the longer we live to start a completer implementation program, the longer it will take us, the more expensive it will be, and the more inconvenience we will have in the lifetime. Well, thank you very, very, very much, Kent uh, and Cosmos, for this enlightening afternoon. And I think this two-speaker format worked extremely well, as far as I'm concerned. Well, thank you all for coming, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone.